Okay. As you all know, uh, I am not much of a sports guy. Not really that interested in sports. Uh, and the little I do know about sports uh, generally relates to a sport I used to be interested in, which was hockey or tennis, um, and a sport that somebody I love dearly is interested in, which of course is baseball. But the one sport I really know very little about is basketball. Um, that said, you don't need to know much about basketball. And if you do know much about basketball, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, don't be giving me any hard time today. But you don't need to know too much about basketball uh, to know who one of the greatest basketballers of all time is. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica has this to say about this well-known athlete. Uh, as a freshman, he made the winning basket against Georgetown in the 1982 National Championship game. He was named College Player of the Year in both his sophomore and junior years, leaving North Carolina after his junior year. He led the U.S. basketball team to Olympic gold medals in 1984 in L.A. and in 1992 in Barcelona. In his first season, which was 84-85, uh, as a professional, he led the league in scoring and was named Rookie of the Year. After missing most of the following season with a broken foot, he returned to lead the NBA in scoring for seven consecutive seasons, averaging about 33 points per game, which I assume is a lot. Again, don't know much about basketball. Uh, he was only the second player to score 3,000 points in a single season. He was named the NBA's most valuable player five times and was also named Defensive Player of the Year in 1988. Like I said, I don't know much about sports. But you don't need to know much about sports to know who I'm talking about. I am talking about Michael Jordan, who, uh, if not uh, the greatest of all time, will certainly go down as one of the greatest of all time basketballers in history. Now, the question you should be asking right now is, why is he talking about Michael Jordan? Well, uh, I think that we learn something about the reality of imitation from Michael Jordan. And it has to do with uh, something which is uh, synonymous with his name. And it is a shoe which carries the nickname that he earned because of how high he jumps when he dunks the ball. It was Nike who made the iconic shoe, the original Air Jordan. And I didn't have to look this up to remember. It was a white high-top Nike with red trim and a black swoosh, Nike swoosh. And if you were a teenager in the 80s, which I was, there was no two ways about it. You needed to get your hands on a pair of Air Jordans. And you would do almost anything to get your hands on a pair of Air Jordans because you wanted success on the court like Jordan. You wanted to dunk like Jordan. You wanted to impress all your friends by dominating on the court during lunch at school. And if that was to be, it had to start somewhere. And of course, as you know, again, don't know much about basketball, but really all, all you've got for gear that matters are your shoes, right? The rest is shorts and a top. All you got is shoes. I assume the basketballs are all regulation basketballs. By the way, Nate is loving this. This is the intro for you, my friend. I think he's the only guy who's into basketball here. But it, it makes the point, because if you wanted to be like Mike, 
you needed to have a pair of these shoes, which at that time would cost you around 60 bucks, which was a lot of money for shoes back then, which in my opinion is a lot of money for shoes today. But there was a, a generation of teenage basketballer wannabes doing everything they could to get their hands on these shoes in the hopes that it would make them even just a little bit more like Michael Jordan. Now, if you happen to hold on to that pair of shoes and didn't actually wear that pair of shoes, you might be able to get upwards of $25,000 for that pair of shoes today. The point of all of this, it, it is to say that imitation is very real. I think that might be one of the greatest demonstrations of imitation in my lifetime anyway. But as we come to our text for today, which is 1 Thessalonians 1, 5b through 10, we find out that not only is imitation real, but imitation is right. Of course, we are not talking about shoes or imitating athletes. We are talking about imitating our leaders in the church and the home so that we can be examples for other Christians to imitate. Because like I said, according to Paul in our text, imitation is real and it is right. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5b through 10. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven." whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, uh, if you recall uh, last week, uh, we were studying this passage that began up in verse 2, where Paul begins to tell the Thessalonians about what it is that he is grateful to God for about them. So he's essentially telling them about what he prays, and, and the particular thing he wants them to know is that he prays to God with thanksgiving for some particular things about them. And they were essentially the things we talked about last week were boiled down into three, uh, three different things. So first of all, he was thankful that God had blessed them with faith, hope, and love, which then resulted in faithful and obedient living. And then he said that he was grateful that God had loved them and thus unconditionally chose them to be his children and then finally, he said he was grateful that they had heard the gospel and they had received the gospel and they had responded rightly to the gospel because the spirit had regenerated and indwelt them. So, so basically, thus far, what Paul has said that he's thankful for is he's thankful that there's clear evidence that the Thessalonians were converted. They had crossed from death to life. They had been transferred from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been truly saved from the wrath to come. And Paul saw that in their lives. And what we learned this morning is that one of the particular ways that he sees that they have been converted is that they follow godly examples and they thus become a godly example. This, this was evidence that they had been saved, that they were Christians, that they had entered into the new covenant of Christ by his blood. It was evidence that they were trusting in Jesus alone, that they followed godly examples and they thus became godly 
examples. So the application of this text is not going to be difficult to discern. Uh, I find it much easier to find the application in something like Thessalonians and First Samuel. Uh, because, I mean, it, it, it's right there. He's saying what he's grateful for, the church in Thessalonica, that they followed godly examples and that they became godly examples. So then the application is simple. We need to follow godly examples and we need to become a godly example. So that's, that will be our, uh, our, our, our outline. We'll talk about following godly examples and then we'll talk about being godly examples. And uh, I pray this will be uh, an encouragement to us uh, I'm sure for some of us it will be a, a, rebuke, a rebuke most possibly. Um, but keep in mind again, keep in mind that this section we're looking at here, Paul is intending to encourage the church in Thessalonica. So let's seek to leave this place encouraged. And if we have to do uh, so with a, rebu- a rebuke in the middle, well, so be it. So uh, we begin here uh, with a, a look at the examples that Paul, Timothy, and Silas were to the church in Thessalonica. And it actually happened... Um, or it began, I should say, uh, with something that we learn outside of First Thessalonians. We have to go to Acts chapter 17. And I read this last week, but I'm going to invite you to look to Acts 17. I would like you to see this this morning. I actually wrote in my notes, I was going to say, oh, we won't turn here because I read it last week. But now I've decided I do want us to see this. Uh, I think this is very important. Um, you know, when you're reading through Acts, uh, there's stuff that is providing background for all of the epistles. This is the history in which the epistles were born. So let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. And we read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what I want us to notice there, and uh, I mean, certainly Luke is writing a history, and he uh, maybe left out some things, you know, maybe when Paul came into town, he found somewhere to stay first. Maybe he went and visited with friends. We don't know, but uh, Luke has written this history intentionally. And so when you read through this, it certainly seems clear to me that Luke is trying to make the point that what does Paul do? He comes into town. First thing he does, he starts preaching the gospel. Uh, first opportunity he gets, he starts talking about Christ, dead, risen, and, uh, and coming again. This is what Paul was all about. And so the first thing that Paul does uh, as a good example for the uh, Thessalonians to follow is that he preaches the gospel. He prioritizes the preaching of the gospel. Now, many, many, many years ago, you may not know, I worked in youth ministry. Uh, I, uh, I ran this youth center, an interdenominational youth center, where there was a skateboard park and uh, uh, ball hockey leagues and all kinds of things that, that youth from the community would come to. And there was this saying that always floated around youth ministry, Uh, And it was this, you need to earn the right to be heard. You need to earn the right to be heard. You've got all these young people coming in, and and you need to prove to to them that you're a a faithful friend. And once you've started a relationship with them, then, and only then, could you share the gospel with them. This idea, in fact, is so popular that a... a, uh, 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 and not just with young people, but th- this is a method of evangelism which is referred to as friendship evangelism. 
Now, there's a lot of different ways that friendship evangelism is uh, articulated and people have some different ideas and whatnot, uh, but, but basically the idea is quite simply that you need to be friends with someone before you can share the gospel with them. You befriend somebody and you get to know them and then you share the gospel with them, which is quite frankly clearly in contradiction with biblical evangelism. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't share the gospel with your friends. I mean, you should, you should share the gospel with friends, but, you know, come to think of it, don't you notice that when you get to know somebody, the longer you wait to share the gospel, the harder it gets. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, okay, you can change that. You know, maybe you, you've got friends that you haven't shared the gospel with. You can do that right now. You can change. That's, that's not, not difficult. But, and, and that's not bad. That's good. Share the gospel with your friends repeatedly, all the time. Do it. Absolutely. But... Don't for a second think that you have to be friends with somebody to share the gospel with them. Share the gospel with with casual acquaintances and share the gospel with total strangers. Share the gospel with with everyone. Uh, You must prioritize the preaching of the gospel. And yes, society will tell you it's incredibly hateful and bigoted of you to tell people they're sinners and need a savior, but don't listen to them. Just share the gospel with people. Um, this is something that Paul models for us repeatedly in the New Testament. I'm just pointing out one example to you. You, you. you notice it says, as was his practice. This is what he did. He was all about sharing the gospel. The first thing he did was share the gospel. So the first way that Paul was a good example to the church in Thessalonica was by prioritizing the gospel and loving them enough to waste no time in telling them about their need for a savior. So gospel preaching was the priority, but we also see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy also lived lives that were commensurate with the gospel. And so we read there in the second half of verse 5, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What kind of men? So it wasn't just about what was said, it was the kind of men that they were. And what kind of men do you suppose they were? Well, I think they were men who lived in response to the gospel. They had received mercy and grace from God, and thus they were merciful and gracious men. They had lived according to the truth of God that was preached by them. They were bold in proclamation, but humble in action. Bold, listen to this, bold in proclamation, humble in action. And I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter. There's lots of bold in proclamation, very little humble in action. This is what we need to strike the balance of. Bold in proclamation, humble in action. Paul says he, they lived their lives for the sake of the Thessalonians. Why do I say humble in action? Because they lived their lives for the sake. They did this for the sake. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you? For your sake. We weren't doing this for our sake. We were doing this for your sake. Paul might put it like this. In fact, he did put it like this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, they counted others more significant than themselves. Something that Paul tells us was put on glorious display by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. In short, like the ministry of Jesus, the, the ministry of Paul, Silas, and Timothy was also selfless and marked by service for the good of others. Selfless and marked by service for others. That's what should define Christian ministry. Selfless and for the service of others. So they preached the gospel and they lived rightly in response to the gospel. They provided a good example for the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians saw their example 
And it tells us they followed their example. As Paul said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, what does that sound familiar? Or, or, or what does that sound? Uh, it's, it should sound familiar, right? It, it should remind you of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1, a verse that is often quoted where Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It sounds very much like that here. They ministered just like Christ, and, and, and they became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord Christ. So the idea is very simple. Paul was following Christ. And so if you followed Paul, well, that meant that you were going to follow Christ as well. It's simple, really. This is the principle. Watch the lives of your leaders. And this is something which is repeated many more times in Paul's letters. I, can, I have them written down here. I won't go over them. But, but watch the lives of your leaders, and then do likewise. Do likewise. Now, the difference between the Corinthian letter, where Paul said, be imitators of me, uh, from the Thessalonian letter, is that Paul doesn't need to say it. He just says they are doing it. I mean, it seems like the Thessalonian church was a cakewalk for, for Paul. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's certainly something he must be rejoicing in. He's giving thanks to God for this. So Paul doesn't need to tell them to follow example. He just notes that they did. They did imitate him. And as they imitated him, they were thus following and imitating Christ. And one particular element of that imitation concerned suffering. So if you look at the second half of of verse 6, he says, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' ministry was marked by suffering, and Paul's ministry was clearly marked by suffering, and so we shouldn't expect anything different for the Thessalonians. They received the word in much affliction. I mean, Jesus told his followers, if they persecuted him, they will persecute you. And surely they persecuted the Lord Jesus. This is one reason why Jesus tells us we are blessed if we are persecuted. Why would it be a blessing to be persecuted? Because they're treating you like they treated Christ which is a demonstration and an indication that you are, in fact, living like Christ. So you notice, um, so, so they received, uh, sorry, where were we? Verse 6. So they, they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, which should uh, indicate for us how we ought to respond to suffering in the Christian life, which is not the way that we usually respond to suffering. We don't usually respond to suffering with joy. We usually respond to suffering with bitterness and complaining and grumpiness. That's usually how we respond to suffering. We don't like it. Uh, We tend to get uh, upset with God when he allows suffering to come into our life. Uh, But look at how the Thessalonians received their affliction. You received the word, uh, sorry, not how they received affliction, but they received the word in much affliction with joy. But notice the source of their joy, right? Some people look and they, and they see somebody respond to a terrible situation of suffering, you know, loss or death or some terrible thing. And you see these people respond positively and, and, and they wonder, how could they possibly do it? You know, they're always Christians and there's only one way that you can respond to suffering with joy and it is by having a, a, the source of supernatural joy. 
And that source is the Holy Spirit who indwelt them and was evidence that they experienced true conversion. So this was what the Thessalonians saw in Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They saw joy in suffering, but joy that could only be explained by the divine presence. So this is the kind of leaders that we need in the church. This is the kind of leaders we need in our homes. We need leaders that are worthy to be followed. And this is a a great lesson for you today um, concerning what this church is all about, and that is the preaching of the word. Because essentially what I am doing is I am standing up here and telling you all to be more like myself in one way. Um, And that's a very hard thing to do because I know myself. (laughs) I know the things about myself that you don't know. Um, So this is very hard to do, but this is what the word says. And this is what I believe that the word, uh, the way I believe it is to be applied. So uh, I, I, but I don't want to just, I'm not just talking about imitating me. I'm talking about imitating myself. I'm talking about imitating Jake. I'm talking about families imitating uh, fathers and husbands, uh, because this is the kind of leaders that we, we need to be as men. We need to be leaders worthy to be followed. Leaders worthy to be followed. We need to be those who suffer well as they proclaim the gospel and live lives that back up the gospel that we proclaim. We need men marked by gospel proclamation, but also marked by godly living who do not back down in the face of persecution. We need leaders in our homes, in our church, and even in our communities who are willing to call others to Christ and to follow Christ regardless of the cost. Now, that is not to say that we need perfect leaders because there are none but it is to say that we need leaders who know that salvation is all of grace we need leaders who trust in jesus as savior and lord we need leaders who pursue holiness and put sin to death we need leaders who know that the only right response to the faithfulness and the grace of god is to live obedient and faithful lives we need leaders in whose lives we see a consistent pattern of preaching the gospel and following christ We need fathers in their homes who speak of the gospel often, who open the word regularly, and who always provide godly examples for their wives and children. And we need elders who will not cease to preach the gospel from the pulpit and provide the godly example that goes along with it. And then, and then, you know, it's all well and good if we have good examples to follow, but nobody follows them. So we need to be a church. We need to be made up of Christ followers who follow the examples that God has put in our lives. So we need family members and church members who will follow the examples of fathers and elders. Now, don't worry about the shoes they wear. Shoes don't matter. But listen to the message that they preach and watch the way they live and then do likewise. Now, if you're not that, you know, I said today it could come with some rebuke. Maybe you're not being the leader in your home that you are called to be, men. Maybe you're not preaching the gospel in your home regularly, opening the word with your family. Maybe you're not presenting a good example. Maybe you don't repent often enough in your home. Maybe you don't provide that godly example. Well, I want you to be encouraged to know that you can Because that is what you have been called to do. And the Spirit has been given to you so that you can do it. And so today is the day to begin being 
the example, providing the example so that your family and that your church has an example to follow. This is the, the point, uh, the message of point one, is that we need to follow godly examples, but that means that we need leaders who will be godly examples. Now, it doesn't stop just with leaders. It's not just leaders that need to be examples. It's not just those who own fast donkeys who need to be good examples. It's all of God's people who need to be godly examples. If you don't follow the kids, uh, the kids' sermon sheet, then you're wondering about the fast donkeys, but you can ask Jake about that later. You see, the, the beautiful thing about this is that when our leaders provide examples to follow, you see where I'm going here? And we follow that example, then we in turn become an example as well. This is exactly what happened with the Thessalonian, Thessalonian church. We see in verse 7, it says, uh, you became imitators of us, you received the word in much, much affliction with joy, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not Ikea, Achaia. Now, if you recall when we started this series on 1 Thessalonians, I mentioned a few things about the city of Thessalonica, which still exists to this day. Uh, but some things that were important about this city, uh, one of them had to do with the uh, economics, the uh, economic situation, because Thessalonica was a port city, which of course was very good, and it was also um, on the major east-west trade route of the Roman Empire. So this was a very strategic place to plant a, a church because its impact could travel, and its impact, in fact, did travel as the church members in fact ended up influencing other churches in the surrounding areas it was as though the church in thessalonica became a a model church this was the model to follow which of course would lead us to ask like what was so special about the church in thessalonica to which paul responds in verse 8 he says for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I mean hard to imagine a more encouraging uh word to receive for a church than that what they were known for what they had become known for what people were saying about them was that they proclaimed the word of God and they had faith in God. That was what was known about them. You know, they weren't known as the log cabin people. It's not really such a bad thing. We have a beautiful building. They weren't known as the people that have really dynamic music. They weren't known as, the, as that church that serves coffee in the foyer. They were known as a church from which the word of God rang forth and which the people of God lived by faith. Man, what a great witness they had, and thus people saw that, and churches modeled that. Churches looked at the church in Thessalonica and said, we need to be more like them. You know, there are a lot of different so-called growth, uh, church growth methods uh, when, uh, around these days, and, and quite honestly, most of them are really bad. Um, just for kicks, uh, I googled church growth methods, and the first three hits were this. 26 key strategies for church growth. 26? I don't have time for 26. Okay, the next one was better. 11 powerful strategies to grow your church. And finally, if that wasn't enough, 35 church growth strategies that work. 
Well, I don't want church growth strategies that don't work. Now, it was painful, but because I love you all, I did the hard work and I browsed through these articles. It was painful. I'm just going to share with you a, a few of the suggestions that I found for church growth. Number one, establish your brand. Establish your brand. Hmm. Encourage children and youth to volunteer with local nonprofits. I mean, like, that's not really a bad thing, but that's a church growth method. Children, don't serve in the church. Go serve nonprofit organizations. I mean, I got things to say about nonprofits, but that's for another time. Number three, identify church marketing strategies to fit your budget. I don't care about your budget, but marketing? Is the church in the business of marketing? I guess we need pastor of marketing, elder of marketing, Jake. A new responsibility for you. I mean, they have, what do they call them now? They have executive pastors now. I have no idea what an executive pastor does, but that's a thing now. You can go take a course to become an executive pastor. I don't know what that is. Number four, start a virtual church. Yes, what a great idea for church growth. Encourage people to stay home. Do you know that the word church actually is the word assembly? It has to do with gathering, and it didn't have to do with gathering online. Number four, serve free coffee at neighborhood bus stops. And finally, say me too as a way to provide a safe place for visiting families because that's what we're all about, the Me Too movement. Now, I, I don't know, uh, but I would imagine if Paul were to write a church growth article today, it would not get much traction. You'd probably have to surf to page number 9,999 on Google before you got to Paul's article. It certainly wouldn't include 35 or 25 or I don't think even 15 ways to church growth because according to our text, there are two things and only two things that you need to do if you want to see church growth. They were the two things that the Thessalonians were known for, preaching the word and living faithful lives. Man, that sounds a lot better than serving coffee at a neighborhood bus stop. And you know, none of those things are necessarily bad. You know, if you want to go witness at a bus stop and hand out coffee, that's all right. Um, if you want to establish your brand, if you know what that means feel free. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that that's not what we need to be known for. That's business. You know, like John Piper once said to, to pastors, brothers, we are not professionals. We are pastors and we are a church. We're not a business. We're not a company. And thus we need to seek to be known for preaching the word and living faithful lives. And this was so clearly seen in the lives of the Thessalonians that Paul says that he and Silas and Timothy need not say anything. What a wonderful thing that is. Man, Paul must have been encouraged here. There was nothing to say about the Thessalonians because the proof was in the pudding. They could not contain themselves when it concerned the word of God and what God had done in their lives, and they let it out. It rang forth, and it spread near and far, and its impact was great. So much so that a report came back to Paul from those who had been impacted. It, it, it says there in verse 9, for they themselves... Which, I did have a hard time identifying who they themselves are, but it had to, in fact, be those who were impacted by the church in Thessalonica. Uh, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. So Paul receives this report from these other believers and churches that have been impacted by the Thessalonians. And there are three things in this report, three more things which provide evidence that the Thessalonians were, in fact, converted. The first thing they're known for is their reception of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now, you've got these three gospel missionaries that come breezing into town, and, and they come preaching the gospel and living godly lives. Now, if we go back to Acts chapter 17, we'll find out that some people did not receive Paul, Silas, and Timothy well. Some of them didn't like him at all, so much so that he had to be uh, uh, rushed out of town for his safety. But the, the church, the believers in Thessalonica, the, the ones whom God had chosen, they received these missionary men, these gospel preachers. And that's exactly what godly people do, real converted people do. They don't welcome in false teachers. They welcome in true, genuine preachers of the gospel, which is exactly what they did. They welcomed them, they received them, and they responded to their teaching rightly. Now, as for that response, the second thing they are known for is they turn to God from idols. Now, as I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, Thessalonica was a very religious city. So it wasn't just the economics that made it significant. It was the, it, it was the religions and the mul- multiple religions, many religions. There were many false gods, and, and there was a many religions. And, and, and these people, the Thessalonians, they turned to God from idols. They turned away idols. They understood that there is now only one true God. They had been led to believe there were many gods, And you could worship in many ways, but now they realize there's one true God, which means the idols need to be put away. The sin needs to be put to death. And so they were known for putting sin to death. And then when they turned away from idols, of course, they turned to God. So, you know, that's the the two sides of the coin of conversion. You turn away from sin and you turn to Christ. You know, it's not enough to turn away from idols. Like as though you could turn away from sin and not trust in Christ. You can't do that. If you're going to turn away from idols, you need to turn to something. And that's in fact what they did. They took their allegiance from their idols and they put their allegiance upon God. Their allegiance was now in God. They had wasted enough time worshiping in idols. Enough with that. Now it was time to serve the one true and living God who created and sustained all things. It was time for them to serve Yahweh, the great I am. And they did this, and it showed, and people knew whom they worshipped. This was the report that came back. Look at those Thessalonians. Man, they don't have any business with sin. They put it to death, and they worship the one true and living God. And finally, the last thing. So first, the first thing in the report was that they received the gospel preachers well. The second thing was that they turned from idols to God. And the, the third thing, the thing we're going to hear much about this December in our Christmas sermon series, The third thing in the report was that they had begun to wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, we're talking about eschatology here, right? The the study of the end times. Now, eschatology is a very fun, fun area of study. It's a very exciting doctrine, because it speaks of the return of Christ. And, and that's very exciting. But uh, as you will know, um, if you've done any study into eschatology, it's a, a doctrine that can be known to divide. 
there's a, a number of uh, positions when it comes to end times, and they all have to do with particularly the timing of the return of Christ and some other things as well. Um, so some think that Jesus will come back after seven years of great tribulation, but before the millennium, which is a literal, which they believe, sorry, is a literal thousand years where Christ will reign on the earth. Some people believe that. Others, like myself, uh, believe that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but rather it refers to the time that we're in right now between the uh, resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And uh, after this period of time, uh, a long period of time, Jesus will return, raise the dead, judge the wicked, and recreate the heavens and the earth for all his people to enjoy for all eternity. Now, still others believe that uh, things are going to get better and better in society and, and more and more people will become Christians, so many so that the millennium will begin. Uh, some also believe that it's already began, but uh, that the millennium will begin, and then after the millennium, Jesus will return. That's a very drive-by uh, on, on the three primary positions on eschatology. Uh, there's much more that could be said, uh, much more I would love to say that I'm happy to talk to you about uh, concerning these three orthodox eschatological positions, which are known as uh, historic premillennialism, amillennialism and post-millennialism. And the more I spoke to you about these things, the more you would see that there is to divide us when it comes to this wonderful doctrine. Because we could talk about things like preterism or futurism or idealism, all which are ways that we interpret the scripture, which is why we come to different conclusions about the return of Christ. But I am here today to not talk about what divides us when it comes to eschatology. Although all of those positions are welcome in this church and should be welcome in any gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. But I want to talk this morning about what unites us when it concerns the return of Christ. And it's, if you just found that drive-by kind of confusing, you're going to love this. Because there is one thing that unites us when it concerns the return of Christ. One thing which there is no room to agree to disagree upon, and it is that Jesus is returning, and that we should be excited about that return, waiting with anticipation, so that along with the Apostle John, we can say, come, Lord Jesus. So, Back to our uh, subject at hand, uh, we need not only to have leaders who set good examples for us to follow, but we need to be good examples in our home, in our church, in our community. After all, the Christian life is not to be lived quietly or privately, by which I mean it should be no surprise to people who know you, and even people who barely know you, that you are a Christian and that you worship Christ. The people in our lives, the people that we live our lives around, the people who know us should know that we worship the one true and living God and that we wait for the return of Jesus. And why do we wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus? Because we treasure Jesus. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. And the people in our lives should know this. I mean, how else can they imitate our faith and our worship, and our preaching, and our obedience, if they don't see such things in our lives. You see, as we learn in our text today, the Christian life is all about imitation, imitation of others, and, and being imitated by others. We talk much 
about the importance of what is taught in the church and the home. And that's good. It's very important concerning what is taught. But, you know, the Christian life is not just about what is taught. It's also about what is caught. I remember learning that phrase when my children were in public school in Texas. And one of the reasons that we, in fact, uh, the, one of the, the ways that God moved us to our position on homeschooling and, and the reason that we, uh, one of the reasons that we took our children out of school uh, was because of this very thing. You see, they had teachers. One of the, I believe one of the kids' teachers was a member of our church uh, when we were in Texas. They had good teachers uh, sometimes, and, and they were being instructed well by those teachers, right? They were being instructed uh, about things like math and science and, and the like, and that was good. Um, but they were not just learning from their teachers. They were learning from the other students. And the area where my seminary was was not an especially good neighborhood, uh, I think my kids might have been some of the only students in their class that had both their parents living at home. And so we, we decided um, that we didn't want our children learning from these other children about things like attitude and habits and, most importantly, worldview. Those are things that they should be learning from their, their parents. And so that was one of the reasons we, we brought them out. Uh, you see, children are watching their parents to see how their lives match up with what they say. And if you have a problem with that, you better stop and think about it. If you have a problem with your children watching the way that you live, you ought to think about the way that you live. I mean, it's no, it's, it's no different. If, if I couldn't stand here and commend my example to you, I need to think about what changes I need to make in my life. And it's no different for for you, as, as parents especially, you should, you should not only just welcome the imitation of your children, you should encourage it. You should encourage your children. You know, maybe, here's, a, here's a, a, an idea for you. I don't know, I would be hesitant to do this, but I'm going to uh, suggest you do it. My kids are grown and moved out, so I don't have to worry about it. But, and, and if your kids are really young, you know, that's one thing. But maybe ask your kids what kind of example they think you set for them. I mean, that would be kind of scary. Um, but, and I mean, again, this is not to say that we need to be perfect people or perfect parents. It, 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 it is to say that we seek to live faithful lives. And when we mess up, we repent. And we gladly repent. I mean... Ah, uh, yeah. So much more I could say about this, but uh, the, the point here to begin with this issue is that uh, as parents, we should seek to set an example for our children, and, and, uh, and I, I pray that the children in this church then imitate their, their parents. And again, I, I want us to be encouraged, right? You know, you get a rebuke, but then you can get an encouragement, right? You, you can do this, People think, oh, I could never do this. How can I possibly set a good example for my kids? You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so, and you've been called to do so, and you can do this. I believe it with all my heart. If I can do it, you can do it. We can do this. So that's, that's one thing. But also, I want to also say that you should have no problem, and by you I mean every single one of you, should have no problem with other members of the church watching the way you live and imitating the way you live. In fact, you should want that. 
In fact, I am encouraging that right now. I want you to look around that right now. I want you to watch the way people live. And I want you to imitate that. And if you're sitting here right now and you say, no, 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 I don't want that, then you need to change. If you would have a problem with another couple in this church imitating your marriage, if you would have a problem with other parents imitating the way you parent, if you would have problems with another woman imitating the way you uh, 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 live as a woman or a man as a man, then you need to change. And again, with the rebuke comes the encouragement. You can change. You have the power to change. If you have been converted and you have the spirit at work within you, you have the power to provide a godly example. The Thessalonians did. We do too. The point being is that every member of the church should be seeking to set a godly example in all areas of life, one to another. And when that happens as a church, then we will become a model church that we would be glad to have other churches follow. That's what happened in Thessalonica. Paul was grateful to God for this. He was grateful that this church in Thessalonica had provided such clear evidence of their conversion and calling, and he was grateful to God that the believers in Thessalonica had followed Uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas is godly example and thus become godly examples. It wasn't about shoes. But if it was, and if Paul was Michael Jordan, then the Thessalonians, Thessalonians were all wearing white shoes with red trim and that black Nike swoosh. They imitated the preaching. They imitated the faith. And in so doing, they became an example themselves, an example worth following, a church that was known for their love for God and hatred for sin. So, again, if we have experienced rebuke today, let's welcome it. Let's be grateful for it. I know it doesn't feel good, it hurts, it stings. But let's be grateful for that rebuke, because God only disciplines those whom he loves. But let me end once again on a note of encouragement. The passage we find ourselves in concerns Paul's gratitude for the church in Thessalonica. And we're, we're going to be uh, leaving for Thessalonians. I know we just got here. It's so sad, isn't it? We're going to leave Thessalonians for three weeks, but then we're going to come back on January 1st, as it was, and pick things up in chapter 2. And so as we leave First uh, Thessalonians, I just want to, I don't even know how to do this. I don't have this written down, but I just want to encourage you all. I want to encourage you all, first of all, to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. I pray on a regular basis that your faith will be strengthened. This is first and foremost a call to trust in Christ. It's not a call to do better. It's a call to trust in Christ, to rest in Christ, to know that no matter how bad of example you've set, or no matter how bad you've been at following examples, your salvation is not dependent on that. Do you hear me? Your salvation is dependent upon Jesus and Jesus alone. His finished work done. But be encouraged to know that God has given you his Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit of God at work in you, and you thus have the power to do what he's called you to do. And so be encouraged this morning as we seek to be like the Thessalonians, and let's together try to help one another in following the examples of our leaders in the church and the home 
and by seeking to be good examples for others because imitation is real and imitation is right.